Hello and good day to you, Timothy Aslin. Hello, Ryan the McDuff Slin. <laughs> and hello, dear listeners, Lislin. Welcome to episode <laughs> 157 of Dismembering Horror, the podcast show where myself, Ryan McDuffie, and myself, Tim Aslin. That's right. We dismember a horror film, a.k.a. we talk about what worked for us, what did not for- work for us, and anything else we found interesting or noteworthy about a, yes, indeed, you guessed it, horror film. All under the guise and spirit and and boisterousness of getting together with your friends <laughs> Tim just looked at me <laughs> watching a horror movie and uh, wanting to not just have a good time watching it, but picking it apart afterwards because it allows for all sorts of discussions about both filmmaking and life itself and the condition of being human. Indeed. Indeed. Tim, today's episode... Just realized it's episode 157. The film we'll be talking about today is from 1957. And then coming off of our previous episode, it's a run-on title between that and this one. So last week was Neuroi, The Curse. This week is The Curse of Frankenstein. So put together, we have Neuroi, The Curse of Frankenstein. Oh, man. Can you imagine that? That <laughs> mashup? Right. <laughs> But it's fun when that happens, both that run-on and the year is the episode number. Cool. Yep. All right. Very cool. Well, we pulled it from the hat as we do. We hope you watched it with us. If not, that's just fine. We welcome you all the same. We'll do a summary for both our behoovement, for yours, if you have or have not seen it. We just all get on the same page. But first, we watch a trailer but first, anything else before that, Tim? You want to talk about? You want to address the world of horror? Uh, the world is full of horror. Stay safe. <laughs> That's horror. It. That's all I've Whether got. Whether real life or in film. Well, there was something exciting. Oh, yeah. That uh, the new I Thought of You, I sent it to you on mm-hmm. Instagram. The new Aquaman film, the director, James Wan, he said he was taking inspiration from Planet of the Vampires, which is an earlier film that we covered. So, Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, interesting that he's pulling from that. You know, be curious to see, like really pick apart what what would he want to pull from it to make or to use in an Aquaman movie. Maybe um, maybe the sort of idea of you're stranded somewhere uh, or maybe 
I don't know. It, it, that's it, it, We'll find out, I guess. I mean, I'll certainly watch it. I might not like it, <laughs> yeah. but I'll watch it. Yeah, I guess it could be the premise of Stranded Somewhere and your crew or the people you came with are getting taken over or possessed or whatever. And or the the kind of general, I don't know, something about the colors and the production design, mm-hmm. maybe. That could be. I could see that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, you've got th- lots of room to play around with since it's all, I mean, you can go to the uh, the depths of the ocean and different worlds and stuff like that or whatever, which is yeah. cool. I just thought that was fun seeing a filmmaker reference inspire getting inspiration from for their new really big mainstream film, a wee film that we watched way back when. That's a bit of a I don't even remember in Planet of the Vampires, what are the vamp what are the actual monsters in that? Do we ever see them? I can't I can't remember. No, it's people people just just coming down. Yeah, that's what it was. They Hmm. turn uh zombie like. Right. Interesting. Yet they're vampires. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see. Should that, I'll, I mean, I look forward to picking that apart. Great. All right. You can let us know then what the uh, inspiration turns out being. All right. Well, then with that, how about we watch our trailer? Sure. Okay, great. <laughs> Get from 1957 directed by Terrence Fisher with a screenplay by Jimmy Sangster, The Curse of Frankenstein. More than a hundred years ago, in a mountain village in Switzerland, lived a man whose strange experiments with the dead have since become a legend. A legend that is still told with horror the world over. We've only just started, just opened the door. Look, now's the time to go through that door and find what lies beyond it. But don't you see, Paul? We've discovered the source of life itself, and we've used it to restore a creature that was dead. This is Frankenstein, who revolted against nature, who experimented with the devil and was forever cursed. His unwilling collaborator was Paul Kremp. I can't prove you but I can stop you using his brain. Why? He has no further use for it. Don't be a Be careful! Go down it! Only two women ever entered this house of evil. Elizabeth, come back! Elizabeth, the lovely cousin who had promised to marry him, and Justine, the maid, who kept passionate and secret rendezvous with her master. Won't you understand you're in real danger? What Victor is doing is dangerous to everyone in the house. Well, there we have it, Tim. Yep. I really like that it, it says on the screen, get out of his way if you can. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Was it? <laughs> we'll try. Uh, and that was talking about Frankenstein, not the, the monster. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Funny. Cool. Well, when had, had you seen this before? No. All right. Well, then on your, after your first viewing here, what would you tell yourself, Tim, per our rating system? Would you tell yourself to avoid it, stream it, rent it, or buy it? You know, 
I I was fairly underwhelmed. Like, there's some cool stuff, and like, I appreciate, for example, it being in color. Um, and I think Peter Cushing is amazing. I'm like, oh, this is why he, you know, was sort of a, I don't know, just like such a such a renowned actor. Cause like we didn't we didn't overlap with him in any way except for Star Wars. And so that was like my only touchstone to who he was. But even then, for some reason, it was understood or implicit when I saw Star Wars that he was a big deal. And yeah. I now I'm like watch this and I go, ah, yeah, okay. I get it. Like young man Peter Cushing was super compelling. Um, not that old man wasn't, but I get it. Um, so, set, you know, having said all of that, I, I don't really think the film itself is great. And I feel like it left a lot to be desired in terms of like, I don't know, a Frankenstein so- story. So I'm, a, I'm just going to be a stream. Cool. Um, it's funny. I, th- I feel like I, I share your your feelings. And it's, I mean, I hate to say it's kind of like with like Giallo movies, a lot of times Mm -hmm. Hammer horror films, they're kind of the same thing where I want to like them more than I actually end up liking them. Yeah. Um, But having said that, I I feel like this just ekes out to a lower rent it as far as just like, if I haven't seen it, it's worth renting just to see, uh, almost maybe more for its historical context or, but no, like, like you said, at the same time, appreciating all that there is to appreciate. And I will say learning that there are many direct sequels to it that just elevates it in itself where it's like, it doesn't matter if they all get worse. It makes, hmm. I don't know. I just love that it, it builds in the Peter Cushing is in all of them and that this is just the beginning of a whole franchise that in itself excites me enough to <laughs> you know we talk about we'll have the box set buy this is mm-hmm. like a box set rent <laughs> for yeah. me yeah that, okay that makes sense so just just squeaks by even though i think i in the end also feel about the same uh, as you did yeah i mean i get that i i in this sort of pantheon i guess if that's the right word to use of of horror and like significance of hammer horror and influence and all that yeah i could get behind that assessment um but like i i kind of would hope that the the ensuing frankenstein hammer movies improve like i i have a I don't know that they do, but I I kind of get the feeling that they probably do. This feels like they're tr- they're still feeling some some stuff out. Yeah, yeah. But I also sure have no context. I I am even just looking now. I'm trying to think like, have I ever seen any other Hammer horror films? Like probably, but nothing that like jumps out specifically. So I don't I mean, know. The Dracula's with Christopher Lee. I, I'm not, I don't know. I, I don't know that I've ever sat down and watched one all the way through. I think yeah. I've caught them like on, you know, USA network 
so when I was a kid I, or something. The one that I always liked, I actually it's was called um it's an anthology film called The House That Drift Blood. And I found out that that's actually from the rival studio that was founded by p- the people who got a short end of a stick on the deal for this film, where they <laughs> like were helping cool. to develop it, but then kind of got kicked out of the deal somehow. So then just opened their own rival company. So, and it was funny. Mm. So then they did also uh, one of the other films we've actually watched, was, which was Asylum. Oh, that was them. Okay, I wondered. Yeah, I not Hammer, the other one I'm talking about. Got, oh, oh I see, I see. That was the other one. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, I'm looking at it right now. I The one that is most obvious and jumps out to me that I know I have seen multiple times is The Hound of the Baskervilles. That's Peter okay. Cushing as Sherlock Holmes. Of course, that makes so much sense. <laughs> um, But then there's a bunch of ones that I'm like, I don't know. Probably not. Well, will you be curious to see more or does this make you want to see? Okay. Definitely. So, you know, yeah, I would. This is an interesting list. I mean, it's a lot of stuff that seems vaguely familiar by name, but not things that I've seen, just kind of heard about. Cool. So, yeah. Well, as far as The Curse of Frankenstein goes... Now that we've rated it, would you care to help us with our summary? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, taking some liberties with the source material, we start off in a prison rather than Antarctica. Or was it the North Pole in the book? I don't remember. One or the other. Probably the North Pole, actually. Um, And uh, Victor is imprisoned for... Well, for unknown crimes that we that become known. Um, and he asks for his last rites. Presumably he's going to be executed. And he pleads his case with the priest. So that just enters us into the story. And in this version, we start off with Victor as a 15-year-old inheriting his fortune from his deceased parents being told as backstory with him in the prison. Exactly. And, you know, pretty, pretty basic setup stuff. Like he, we see him as a 15 year old. (laughs) That's a really good casting, honestly, with the spot on casting. It's crazy. It's so funny. Um, with a moment with a transition from the actors yeah <laughs> so funny yep so so in this version really what what they've set up is that he's young he's inherited his fortune he lives in the mansion um they establish his cousin elizabeth as like maybe a future wife thing which is i'm sure was very common now seems weird but whatever whatever um but the big the the thrust of it is the relationship between Victor and his uh the teacher that he brings on to teach him all about the world and science and and all of those fun things. Um that guy's name it oh I'm on the wrong page. What was he that said guy's it name? Over and over. And it was wonderful how he says it. Paul Krempe. I'm That's Paul right. Krempe. Paul, but I'm Paul Krempe, which the yep. in the, Paul, the trailer Paul. we watched 
the trailer we watched, they just said Kremp. But it's very <laughs> yeah. clear in the film. It's it's a Kremp, how he says it. Kremp, anyway. Paul yeah, Krempe. using the, the accented E from German um, makes sense. An E on the end, you always like say in German. Anyway, so... So Paul is his uh, is his teacher. We see them learning stuff, and then we transition to him as an older man. He's become fascinated. Well, as a young man, not a child, uh, Victor's become fascinated with science and with um, experimentation and all these cool things. And Paul is still tutoring him, and they get pretty advanced in their scientific studies and experiments and they end up bringing a dog back to life, which is a fun scene. And that kind of is our, you know, gateway into Victor's uh, obsession with, with controlling death and bringing dead things back to life and effectively becoming sort of a uh, hubris filled God figure in his own mind. Standard, Frankenstein kind of trope. Although in this version, Victor really is kind of the villain. And I feel like that's not always the depiction of him. And the film really does focus mostly on him as the antagonist. Less so on the on the monster itself. But, you know, that's in there. Poor Christopher Lee. I feel like he... uh there's, you know, we, we could have used more of him. Um, anyway, it spirals into Paul uh, disagreeing with Victor's pursuits. Uh, Paul's love for Elizabeth. Um, Victor being kind of a smarmy dude, like he's having an affair with the maid, but he's just kind of a jerk. Um, and this all leads to him, you know, he makes Frankenstein. It works. They kill Frankenstein. Wait, Tim, you're you're slipping right into the old our old uh, kid habits here. You're calling the monster Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he makes so, the monster. Let's call him Jim. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So he makes the monster Christopher Lee. <laughs> uh, Paul kills the monster victor revives the monster because he can tries to improve on it and then kind of uses the monster to like exact a little bit of revenge sort of and it all kind of just falls apart um and leads to not only the demise of the monster but also victor getting kind of like caught and accused and put in jail and that's kind of it. That's kind of how it ends. It's it's a little, I don't know. It doesn't have the um the epic sort of finale feel that the 1930s one had. No, very uh simple story simply told. Not and that's a a strength I think though. Yeah. Yeah. You know that, you know. It's it's interesting. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, the guillotine. I forgot about the very end. Is the victor is led away to the guillotine, which is fun. Which apparently he escapes from because <laughs> That's there's right. many sequels, <laughs> multiple. 
Oh, man. Well, there you go. That's it. All right. Great. I don't know. Thank you. It's a Frankenstein movie. It's pretty It's pretty much yeah. on board with the, the basic arc. Right. We know the beats, including the blind old man scene. That's right. The blind old man. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, with that, I think we can move on to our next section. What worked? What worked? What worked for you? What worked for you? It worked like a charm, Smith. What worked? What worked for you? To get out of the way what you already brought up, Peter Cushing, how great he is. Man, he's yeah. really great. Yeah, he... <laughs> well, and I wanted to say Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, both. They both yeah. just, they they sell it. And Christopher Lee, I think, was my personal favorite. Just, I think it's so much fun when you have an actor of his, um, his, his class and his dedication playing a... Something so single-minded. I don't want to say so- mm. someone, mm-hmm. but something. It feels better somehow. But something that's just so pure, single-minded, like, I am crazed, this thing bad, want to kill, feel bad, I am mad. To see someone like fully commit to those, then with the kind of the nuances of the physicality of it all, I yeah. I was very enraptured with what he did and... Yeah, it's it, and someone who has that intense sort of intelligent gaze like he has hmm, to have yeah. that to have um a sort of crazed dumb insanity filtered through that it 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 magnifies the 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 stupidity and the craziness, you know, I don't know, as if there's there's still that much knowing and awareness that's representative of what would normally be his intelligent gaze. Um, but for entirely different yeah, purposes than, <laughs> than if he was a sane, regular person. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I was very enthralled. With the um, I agree. I, I also think it's worth noting, like, Robert Urquhart, who... I was like, man, this guy looks familiar, but I, I, I don't think I've seen him in other stuff. Cause you I mean Paul Crempe? Yeah, the guy Paul plays Paul. I, I, I looked at his, um, his filmography, and I don't recognize a single movie on it. So I'm like, I don't, I don't know. But I actually think he was really good and compelling too. Like he matches Cushing in, in sort of like they spar and they go, they go at it, and I felt like it was a good matchup um yeah they're they're i mean their uh rivalry is basically the real thrust of this film oh yeah and absolutely they spar head to toe acting wise fervor wise the the conflict at hand they both passionately defend mm-hmm. you know their point of view in a way that just yeah you get wrapped up in it it's really good yeah, and it's. I think it's really interesting. You know, you go back to these movies. This is fifty-seven, so you're sort of, you know, you're in really the second main phase of like movie. Well, I guess it could be the second or third phase, depending on how you look at it. But early phase of movie making. But one thing stands out is that this the actor archetype is 
is totally still consistent. Like I looked at Cushing in this and I was like, oh, I've seen this, the modern actor that is this archetype. It's like Tom Hiddleston, you know, the guy who plays Loki, but he does Mm -hmm. all sorts of other stuff. But like, I was like, it's the same guy. It's the same essence. It's the same archetype. And even like the, you know, Paul, the guy who plays Paul, I'm like, oh man, I know that guy. I I, I have to think harder to come up with an actual, you know, Colin Firth. Yes, yes. Colin Firth, that's exactly right. It's so interesting (laughs) to me how these archetypes are just so consistent. And, you know, that's kind of the name of the game in a lot of ways when you're casting is like, can you hone in on somebody who has the essence of these archetypes? And if so, you're probably going to have a fairly good movie or at least fairly good performances. So I think that's really fun. Um, The... The other totally story-driven fun thing that I don't feel like I remember being a big part of other versions of Frankenstein is this thing of like, I'm going to go source the material for the monster from the best minds slash hands slash parts that are out there. So like the hands that he uses he went, he found out that like the greatest pianist in the world had just died. And so he wants the greatest, most delicate hands the world has ever seen for his monster. Same with the brain, right? He, he, I mean, he actually (laughs) straight up murders the dude to get this brain. The, you know, one of the geniuses of the world who's an older guy kills him and takes that brain because he wants the best parts. And I don't remember that being a thing in other versions. And I think it's really cool. Yeah. So good job, you guys. You did it. <laughs> uh, I The thing that I put at the top of my list for what worked, though, even above the actors, was just the setting and production design, I guess would be the accurate way to put it. Where yeah. it's, it's like because, I don't know if it's because of or, or why, but these happen to be, you know, this was the second, uh, you know, we had the Universal Frankenstein movies that started in the 30s, ran through the 40s. Now we're here in the 50s, but it's still close enough where it's it's pure gothic architecture setting. You aren't putting you, you aren't putting big spins on the formula yet, mm, you know? Mm-hmm. It really is like truly just the same elements as the well, the original novel, I guess, and but the, the you know we think of the the nineteen thirties film. So castles. Uh, anytime there's an establishing mat shot of you know a carriage going by, yeah. all that is just my favorite stuff. I eat that up and kind of. I think that is maybe a, a large part of the appeal of the Hammer horror films, as well as you know you could say it was comparing them to. Um, I'm always trying to get on board with the Giallo films, but you know, where I do get the appeal of those it is just a look, feel, place setting mm-hmm. thing happening that's so unique to these films. It's, it's everything's dirty and rocky and murky and <laughs> somber. Yeah. It's just, it feels so right that they could just find a dead body hanging from a tree and cut it <laughs> off. It's, it's great. Yeah. That matte painting that's really early on when 
I, I can't remember. I think it's Paul is going to Frankenstein's manor, castle, whatever you want to call it. That is a out of, like, just out of this world matte painting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it actually felt more Dracula-esque to me than anything, but who cares? It, it was Which, so, so cool. So then this does make you want to watch the Dracula with Christopher Lee, huh? Yeah, it does, actually. I, I almost, I don't know. I mean, I'd be curious to know if that suffers from similar things or if it if if Dracula is a better story for the kind of tonality that the hammer this at least based off of this um that they're presenting I don't know yeah I I definitely want to watch it though I thought it was interesting with this one where the real aside from the horror elements which you know are they're throughout and it is somber throughout but it's it's not like a you know you could see modern audiences who dislike slasher movies or whatever being disappointed with the amount of just the month when how often the monster's on screen how long it takes to get to them so what you're really latching onto aside from just the mood atmosphere and suspense is just there's this I don't know I thought a, a, describing it as a chamber drama felt accurate where yeah. it's like he's you know he's seeing the maid but he's supposed to marry the cousin and um uh the 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 professor who comes and visit but so it's about i don't know and i was able to get on board with all that and i, I don't know i just thought it was interesting but the real like i guess i already kind of mentioned it but the character drama that was yeah. working being between uh frankenstein and <laughs> paul krempe was their opposing viewpoints of what to do with it and i thought it was so smart how they there was a clear demarcation point where when we have Paul Krempe tell Victor at a certain point sooner rather than later, you can't see the horror of what you're doing. And at the time, I was blind to it. And they have that back and forth where Frankenstein's like, uh, you know, I want to be famous because of it. And Krempe <laughs> comes back at him. No, you'll be infamous, not famous. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it's just... Uh, yeah, it was it was really good to have that be at the crux throughout it and only build from there. And then we come back to them every so often and they're sort of expanding on that theme and right. that question. I thought that was good, clear, concise. Check up with them as we go on. Here's when we're addressing this conflict. It was cool. Yeah, considering that there's quite a lot of essentially the same conversation over and over again, it yeah. <laughs> never really felt as sloggy as you would expect that to. And part of yeah. that is, I think, the acting. Part of it is that they're kind of moving us around the environment. So we're not always just in the one room where the, where Victor is experimenting or whatever. Um well, it's always it's always spurred on by external circumstances too. Like Kremp, Paul Krempe, when he sort of makes that decision at the beginning, I don't think this feels good anymore. It largely has a lot to do with Elizabeth showing up. All of a sudden, right. in the presence of this woman, the cousin, he's like, the contrast of Elizabeth being there with what they're doing highlights the problems for him of, yeah. uh, of what they're doing there at school. Yeah, it's like he gets, you know, back in touch with the 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 world that exists outside of their 
obsession and that's a pretty yeah. cool element to have you need you you actually need that um you need somebody to be feeling that now i think you could do a version and probably there have been versions where victor is actually the person who is having that internal conflict like he gets obsessed and then you know elizabeth or somebody else pulls him out to say hey you got to get it back in touch with this and that's cool but having paul be the one who's really the protagonist in a lot of ways experiencing that and then pleading with Victor to see it and Victor just not. I think that's a, I mean, it's a cool construct because then we, we have this built in essentially triangle of conflict, right? Cause Paul, Paul is trying to convince two people. Everybody's always trying to convince two people of something, right? So Paul's trying to convince Elizabeth and Victor that this is, well, two different things. Victor, that he should cut it out. And Elizabeth, that she should bounce. She should get out of there. <laughs> yeah. And then Elizabeth is trying to convince Paul that everything's chill and to convince Victor to, like, you know, pay more attention to her, essentially. And Victor is just trying to convince both of them to fuck off and let him do his thing. And so he, you know, there's this, it creates a fun dynamic, just generally speaking, to to have these kind of, everybody's in conflict with everybody at all the, all the time. So that's nice. Yeah. Obviously, having the monster around, you know, it serves its purpose. Um, it's more of a tool in this film, I think, than anything else. Right. Which well, is and they're still cool. There's still suspense within that character interactions too, because like we know that uh, Victor really is sadistic and evil and crazy right. and insane. The moment that he pushes the professor off the banister, which was just oh, man. an incredible moment. It's so sad. The professor's being so nice to him. He's like, oh, it's so good to see you, Victor. You're such a, look at a nice young man you've become. And Victor just goes like, what's that over there? My God, watch out! Pushes him off the banister. It's so wicked. And just that moment, it's just so funny and great. But so that's unbeknownst to Paul, who's still kind of defending him at that point, I believe. He's, when he's explaining, tries to explain to Elizabeth what's going on, Elizabeth's like, well, has he gone crazy? He says about Victor, he's neither wicked nor insane, just so dedicated to his work. So it's only like, there's there's a line to be crossed there in his mind he hadn't crossed yet. So well, we're that's really for smart. that shoe to drop. Right? Like, it's super smart to have, if if your protagonist-antagonist relationship is Paul and Victor, to have Paul still believing that there's hope and us seeing there's no, there's no hope. Like Victor's horrible. And yeah. so having our protagonist fight for him still, or at least defend him still is so, so smart because then we're that much more invested in it coming to a, you know, a, a good conclusion. And like, we know it's not going to. Because Paul is is blind, blinded by his friendship or his love for Victor to not see the just the reality of it. He's like, he's that's his internal struggle essentially the whole time, which is really it's smart. Yeah, and having that did help justify that the story begins 
with uh, them being young. Like he's like, well, I suppose the story starts when I was a young teenager or whatever it is, because then we actually get a sense, oh, they do have this history. They were spending years together, spending every day together in the same room on these pursuits. So yeah, yeah, just reminding you of that, uh, that history they have does help while he's always does want to hold out hope. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I thought it was really good how the there was I don't know there wasn't a whole lot that was like getting us to kind of be with Victor I guess and just sort of see where he's coming from you know I don't know as how obsessed he is with his work but the idea that which he's totally right when he brings it up that is why it's compelling that this was actually somehow um Paul's fault for damaging the brain, whether it's his that's fault one of the, or not, whatever. Uh, yeah. But the fact I think that's that one of the it coolest was damaged plot moves. Yeah, to have it, it, that. It, it 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 makes it so it refocuses the conflict. You could say on just the idea of playing God at all and bringing back people from the dead is bad business, uh, because from Victor's standpoint, or you know, at that at that point, it's like, yeah, but we haven't even been able to do what we're trying to do. And look, this is just further proof that what we're doing can and does work. It's just the damaged brain. So that was just that little amount where you're like, yeah, you know, actually, I get what he's freaking out about isn't even the experiment as they intended it to be. So I don't know, you know, there's the, it, it, it keeps that, that curiosity open in a way, or it was just a little, it was good as far as just a, in a little bit of defense in defense of where Victor is coming from. It's exactly our, um, what didn't work quote. It's Brundle fly being like, it's not quite right yet. You know what I mean? And it's this, I think that having Victor be that mentality of like, you got to work through the science of it and work through the failures to get it right. And being so singularly focused on that obsessively. So is such an interesting thing to watch because at a certain point you go, hang on, you've lost the plot, right? Like you've, you are, your obsession is overriding your logic. Like, if the brain got damaged, don't put that brain in the monster. Yeah. Right? Like, it's only going to lead to problems. But he's like, no, 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 I can make it work. It's the hubris thing, right? It's still a matter of like, oh, no, I can I can fix it. I can make it work. And I think that's yeah. always a really compelling component in a character to watch. Because you're like, rem- you know it's going <laughs> to You just know it's going to fail. It reminds me of like how that helps to justify uh, like I bought the premise of Jurassic World. Like, well, well, you know, why would they build a whole nother theme park when the first one didn't work? It's like, well, it never actually got up and going that we know what the problems were. Our technology is better now. We can build better gates. It's like you get it. You get it. If you, you know, when it didn't work out the first time, how can you say it didn't work? Right. (laughs) Anyway. What did you think of uh, the bookends? Did those work for you? How it's, you know, we we start with him telling the story he's crazed in the prison and that's where we end? Eh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I mean, I think of la- the last big thing for me really is 
which is mixed. I have mixed feelings about it, but I do really appreciate the monster design for the most part. Um, I love the, the eyeball scene. Um, and then the, the application essentially of the, the eyeballs that, the, that we see. And oh, then yeah. once it's in his head, like the makeup job to, to kind of match that, I thought was really cool. Um, yeah, we should just shout out the makeup work too. They are basically working under this, uh, constraint of you can't has to look so different from the universal look because that's copyrighted. Right. So what do you do? But it it does look like even more so than the universal one. This is a walking corpse. This little yeah. this little like tuft of black hair, like <laughs> so funny. But I well, can I see think- this if yeah if you're buying into this as a original audience, it'd be really horrifying. One of the things that I think, you know, and I I assume this is was a, a a design, a specific design choice is because the body has been submerged in water to achieve what it needs to achieve. Um they effectively the makeup seems kind of driven by this waterlogged you know, decay look. Like this is what a you know, if you left a body in water as it as it sort of waterlogs and, and disintegrates, this is kind of the, you know, a stage of that, which I think is really disturbing and really cool, but also practically speaking, makes sense. So yeah. I, I I quite like that. Yeah. It's fun. All the gizmos and gadgets and bubbling, bubbling uh, uh, jars, <laughs> whatever yeah. those are all called. I do uh, like all that. It's cool. But you're right. Was, it really does like later, you know, in the 60s, it's so similar to the Romero zombie looks. Yeah. Um, but, you know, maybe they're taking a cue off of this. Yeah. It is he is a zombie essentially, right? Uh, I always like Frankenstein is a zombie. Frankenstein's no, monster is a zombie. Oh, he, Frankenstein's yeah. monster is a zombie. Yes, think about that. They're zombie movies, not Frankenstein movies. You, you know, so is the way. mummy. The mummy yeah. is a zombie. <laughs> <laughs> whoa whoa dude (laughs) what i'm supposed to say my mind is blown they're the dead come back to life so the 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 mummy is a zombie but are zombies mummies no well in this case we get a pretty intense mummy mummified look at first when when he first comes back to life that actually that that moment too when he (laughs) opens the door and and christopher lee is just standing there all wrapped up in bandages for the first time it's pretty good it's a pretty pretty good moment (laughs) yeah that that uh sped up dolly in on christopher lee as the monster just the (laughs) reveal he's like looking around just imagine a 1957 audience just totally freaking (laughs) the heck out yeah like my my seven or eight-year-old dad being like, whoa! <laughs> whoa! 
Yeah, hiding behind the couch at that point. <laughs> uh, so something else I really love, an element I love in Frankenstein stories, it doesn't always come up, but when it does, is the idea of like the the crazed scientist who's so obsessed with the work that he's only approaching like human connection from that same like logical kind of just cold standpoint where like we see it in reanimator is one that especially gets into it as well, where it's like no time for girlfriends that I have more important things to do. Like that's what's going on here. It's interesting where he specifically says spending time with Elizabeth, he would just see as idling away. Right. Like, okay. Okay. And then, then he's (laughs) making out with the maid meanwhile, and is just kind of, uh, doesn't hide kind of his feelings about her like that. Oh, you're so silly. I have no interest in marrying you. <laughs> right. Like, he's just so hard down in his 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 worldview of work, 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 anything else, human connection, whatever, is just mere idling away, especially with a woman. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, just for lastly, I guess for me, just um, kind of a... I appreciate when a movie does a little nice setup early on. We set up the vat of acid um, that v- Victor cuts the head off of the um, the criminal bot, the, the cadaver that they steal and mm. cuts the head off, dumps it in a vat of acid. So we establish that vat of acid and then coming back around so that when the monster goes through the the window and such he falls directly into that same vat of acid just i appreciate those things little yeah setup and payoff it's always pleasing to me my favorite weird little random moment that just tickled me was on top of just how he'd say paul krempe was <laughs> when um after they shoot the monster in the forest Paul's Paul's saying to uh, Victor, okay, well, yeah, you you told the village, you told the police, so they should be on their way or whatever. And then Victor goes like, well, no, I didn't tell them. And then (laughs) Paul Krempe's response to that, it's just his delivery, just special shout out to it. I loved it so much. He goes like, you madman. He's like, (laughs) the way he extends and puts emphasis on the you is is so uh, inimitable. Very amusing. You, yes, very Paul Krippa. You madman. <laughs> Who says that like that? But it's just so good. It's perfect. Little yeah. shout out. Favorite moment. It's cool. You know, they did a good job of like bridging that over the top melodramatic kind of style of acting with like really grounded just intensity. Like they're just, they're they're in it. <laughs> yeah. Again, to tie it all back, it's great performances. <laughs> yeah. They believe it. They believe in what they're doing, whether it's the actors believing in doing their job or the characters doing their job. All one in the same. Because <laughs> they're British. <laughs> Say so. <laughs> Dedication to one's uh, task at hand. Indeed. All right. Yep. Well, if that's that, then we can move on to our next section for The Curse of Frankenstein. Next section being what did not work. It's not ready yet. Seems to work okay. No, something important's missing. 
one did not work. <laughs> As great as that handling of the drama is, was, of where it's allowed to be melodramatic and it still works somehow, this is this is very particular and specific. I don't know why, but just any moment where Victor would get so enraged, he'd strangle someone, like at the beginning of the, at the prison, just believe me, so I'm going to strangle you. And then they'd rightly freak out. He'd say, oh, uh, I, it's okay. I've regained my composure now. Trust me. Yeah. I don't know. That just, it's just so intense. It just, it, that just bugs me. I don't know. Yeah. The, qu- the quick, it. the quick, like, oh, I'm sorry. I, I lost myself for a moment there. It, like, like, even if you, you did, didn't just I lose just, yourself, bro, you just tried to kill me. <laughs> right. That's, that's why I don't relate to like, you could completely like lose yourself, but how would you even in that lost state resort to strangling this person is going <laughs> to help them listen to me? I just don't get I'm going to start just doing that. Just anytime. Anytime <laughs> I'm like, you're not listening to me. Ma! Grab oh, him by so the sorry. neck. I'm so sorry. Hang on. I'm okay now. I'm sorry <laughs> yeah. about that. Just oh, lost cool. my composure for a second. Don't worry about we it. Get it. We get it, bro. Now. We've all we've all been there. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, that one I remember. Yeah, it's a little. You're kind of like, all right, come on now. It's, it's funny. You mentioned too, like, how he... Uh, how he's going about trying to get the best parts. I, I like that a lot. That does help me with kind of, I don't know, the issue I had was just feeling the sympathy for Frankenstein and his goal. I just wish there was more to that. Like he just seems so crazed from the get-go and obsessed with his work. It just doesn't really, I don't know. There could have been a little more in to his obsession. I would have yes, liked. they, they cast him as a villain from the absolute get-go. Yeah, he can still be an antagonist without being a sort of uh, unsympathetic villain so much. Right, right. Like, if, Yeah, there's no moment when you go, oh man, I really hope Victor figures it out and can change. Like there should have been some kind of moment from in those flashbacks with him in his childhood with Paul that kind of sows the seeds of the relationships of where we see Paul acting in a way that wasn't so good that mm. then Victor is always trying to do the right thing, for, you know, in response to, but is somehow then taking it to a, the unhealthy extreme here. I don't know, just as an example, just something to allow us into his psyche more would have been nice. That's right. What What is very precisely missing in this depiction is us seeing Victor establish a desire to solve the problem of death. Right? And the way you do that and the way we've seen it in all sorts of other versions is have him lose somebody close to him that we watch him experience the grief of and have him say, like, I don't want anybody to ever have to feel this way again. That It sets up the reason for his obsession, his obsession can run wild afterwards. No problem. Have him be crazy. But like when you have the touchstone of the why we then at least kind of go, yeah, he's crazy. But like, it started with this. It started with trauma. Probably most excellently done in Frankenweenie. <laughs> sure. That the dog dying. Bring, bring back the dog. The little kid That's wants right. his dog back. <laughs> Can't relate to that. Well, it's such a key component to like every like so many versions of the broader Frankenstein 
style story, right? Like Pet Cemetery does it very well. Um, I mean, that's super traumatic. And of course, you you right away you kind of go, oh, he's unhinged, but I get it. He just his kid just died. Yeah. Like, sure. So Yeah, here too much. I just didn't need him to be the villain. I'd just rather have it the conflict being even more juiced up where we're where you know where our sympathies can lie with both of them more. But whatever. Well, but you know, and I think this is this was a conscious decision, it seems, because they they really decided to say, okay, we're casting Victor as the villain of this story. The monster is just a tool, whereas in other versions, the the monster is and the and the the sort of the problems that ensue by creating the monster um is the driving force. In this, that's not really what's going on at all. Like there's not really any consequence to Victor creating the monster. It's just a continuation of his obsession. It doesn't cost him anything really to have created the monster and have the monster like get out. They just go kill it, bring it back. So, you know, it's really not a story about the monster at all. This one. Yeah. And we don't, I mean, there's no broader, I mean, I think there's some inherent sympathy for the monster, but they don't lean in on that at all. When we see him tied up and Victor is like controlling him and like, you know, saying sit, you know, you kind of go, man, this, this is rough, but that's it. It's, it's half a scene. I think that was kind of a big problem for me, I guess. Or a thing that didn't work is where I'm like, in a lot of ways, the monster itself was unnecessary to this film. Like, I don't feel like it added much and it's not utilized in a way to to further extend the 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 construct of this version that they're honing in on which is victor's obsession Uh, like like how so how could it have been uh more tied to the story i just think that they they there needed for me there needed to be more actual like interaction between victor and the monster so that it can elicit some some something within victor i mean if he can if we can see him interacting with the monster in such a way that you know maybe initially it's it's like a pet to him uh, or he's trying to c- c- maintain if his whole thing in this movie which is largely the outside world is irrelevant to me and I have no interest. Like, as you said, you know, it's just idling by if to, to spend time with other people. If that's his sort of conceit as a character, then having him apply that to the monster, you know, purposefully, and then having that him lose track of that as his own personal sort of rule and becoming closer to the monster then gives us a sense of something to lose or something to gain and gives him an internal conflict of his own rules. And so like, right. Yeah. It can drive something for him. 
Yeah, so you take his stated worldview and challenge that by putting it into the situation where shouldn't someone just be able to say to him, "Aren't well, aren't you just idling by with a monster? Like, right. <laughs> if he becomes attached and he actually becomes, builds a relationship with the monster by, through achievement, right? Like, oh, I've gotten him to do this. I've, through victories in his mind. Then when somebody kind of puts a magnifying glass on that and says, this is really twisted what you're doing, it it puts him in a position to to have his worldview kind of challenged. But we don't we don't really get any of that. We don't I mean we we get the one scene where he shows Paul what he's taught the monster. That's it. And it's like, okay, so really the relationship between him and the monster is is largely irrelevant to the actual story. And so I that to me that that's what the that's the gold of a Frankenstein monster is getting the relationship between Victor and the monster down. Um, yeah, it stayed not under the realm of thing, but it stayed yeah more under the realm of like just him being obsessed with his work versus specifically the repercussions of what the work is. Yeah, I mean, I I'd love to see. I I really like because I have strong feelings about you know, taking any other sentient being and deciding how it's going to live, like keeping it in captivity. Like I have a very strong, you know, mixed emotions when it comes to zoos, like people in, or people, animals in captivity, people in captivity, actually, I have strong feelings about prisons. Like, these things tend to, this is a broad sort of generalization, but they tend to not be the ideal environment for any living being. Um, and so that there's inherent story and conflict, you know, available to us when you use that construct. And none of that's really used in this. I mean, other than the monster getting loose, like, okay. You just, sorry, you just made me want to check the 2021 animal kill count. Animals have been killed for food this year in the United States alone. 35,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,
who knows what animals were there. I mean, I'm sure it's listed somewhere, but like you look at some of those cages and it's, it's pretty dark. I don't think any animal would have liked it. Nope. (laughs) I wouldn't have. So point being that those components that I think are ripe for the picking in a Frankenstein story, they're not in this story. There's like a brush with it in one scene. Yeah. And that's it. And I think to me, you're you're really, really missing out if you're not at least honing in on it to some degree at a certain point in the film to sort of, you know, push the story forward. Yeah. Uh, only other, I don't know, this is something I hate complaining about so much. It's not always an issue for me. Sometimes, sometimes the style really works for movies. But it, your your actors are so great in this. I just wanted more. There's they they really fall to the standard, just kind of like long take wide shot feel. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was just me watching it, but I don't know. Yeah. For that the actors on hand and the story at play, I would just personally have liked some. Uh, I don't know, some more close up, some more back and forth, something something more. Like still show off those settings with those wides by all means. I know this is so particular and maybe kind of picky, but I don't know. It's, I don't know. At the, let our in be the characters at a certain point And I mm-hmm. don't know, shoot, shoot it from there. That would have yeah. helped me be engaged in the end. It feels kind of longer than it actually is. And I think it has to do with that. And yeah, we've seen totally. plenty of, old movies from the thirties now that don't fall prey to that. So it's not a, because it's old excuse. The black cat. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, vampire. Yeah. Oh man. Vampire. Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, it's, we know, I think we can, or at least we can pause it as to why that is. It's, It's an efficiency you know, style of filmmaking and, you know. Well, it's, that's what, that's what interests me. Like, I want to call it like a classical style, but, but then like we just said, not all classics were necessarily like that. So right, it's weird. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, the all thing's right. only 83 minutes long. <laughs> right. Like you well, could have could... added a couple more close-ups. Yeah. And it <laughs> wouldn't have made it longer. That's right. Uh, Great. So with that, are you good with things of note? Move on to that. Yeah, let me think. Is there anything else that didn't work? I mean, no. <laughs> you know. Ooh. Oh, yeah, there is actually. The one big one for me uh, was the lack of kind of, like, I'll, I'm forgiving of the lack of a finale, so to speak, but in a Frankenstein monster movie, the way that Franken the the monster like comes to life was a real letdown to me. There was just I don't know. It was sort of like they left the room. It didn't work the first time, and then a bolt. Like we didn't even see the bolt of lightning. It like get, just give me at least a bolt of lightning hitting a the thing. Yeah, just the stuff just turned back on, and then, and then whatever. I guess it worked. 
that bummed me out. Uh, did you start off saying something about there's more the uh, a sh- uh, climactic ending though that wasn't there for you either? It sounded like that's yeah. Where you I were mean, going. I'm I can I can kind of I think what they did with the ending was sufficient. It was a rooftop it, finale, kind of right. A, it didn't have the epic scope of of the '30s version, and that, but they're not doing the '30s version, so I I can forgive it, and you know accept what it is. I'm okay with that. But man, when the monster is being animated for the first time, to not have some sort of like that's your that is your moment to like go nuts, and they just don't. So bummer. Yeah. Milk it. Having some whirly gigs is not enough. <laughs> right. Make a moment out of it. Right. Well, so there you go. All right. Then with that, we'll move on to our next section. Things of note. Things of note. <laughs> this should be interesting. What did you think of the ending as far as Paul not telling the truth at the end that Vic that that Victor did indeed make this monster? He seals his fate by lying that uh that no indeed Victor is a madman. Don't believe him. And then they send him off to the gallows. Yeah, I don't know. I have just, I don't know what to think of it. I don't feel like it, it, I don't know. I don't know. Was he just that mad at Victor? Was he trying to bury, thought it was important enough to bury the science at the behest of his friend's life? That's kind of what I got out of it. It's like, no, you know, this is so evil Mm -hmm. that if, if I say it happened then, and it's proven to be true, then someone else is going to continue the work. It sort of felt like it was... I don't know. It feels like a cop out. It feels like uh, let me just wash my hands of this, and I'm still mad. <laughs> yeah, felt that way too. That's what it was just weird. Interested. Hard just to curious. hard to say one way or the other. It felt flat to me, so I don't know. I guess that's a negative. Okay, just curious. Yeah, what am I supposed to get out of that, or what? You the got thing out is, of it's it? not like like Paul can be mad, and that's all fine and good, but. When all is said and done, what did he really lose? It's not like Elizabeth got killed. If Elizabeth had died, I really thought that's where this was going to go. I thought Elizabeth was going to die, and that was going to kind of be the the f- climax or ending, and that would set us up for bringing her back to life in the sequel. Um, but it all kind of just like, you know, what's the... It's weird. It's it's a little mixed. Once the monster's dead, we're just sort of like, okay, now back to back to Victor in jail. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. it definitely marked the end of their friendship, you could say. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> uh, I thought it was cool and noteworthy that this was the first color Hammer Horror film, their first Frankenstein film, and the first significant Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing pairing. Yeah, that's cool. 
the first really this is a quote the first really gory horror film showing blood and guts in color color spelled with a u because <laughs> it's british right um that's by professor patricia mccormick i could see that because i always think now uh was it 2000 maniacs was early but that was 64 mm-hmm. so it's yeah this predates that by a good bit yeah I for sure see that that's cool and got good use out of it seeing those eyeballs in full color i like that <laughs> yeah uh thought it was I interesting mean, crushed in the box office oh yeah just crushed it made eight million dollars and it cost two hundred and seventy thousand. Like, dude. Well, on. and that's a big enough of a crushing, Tim. We got as far as with direct sequels with Peter Cushing, we had five of them. After <laughs> this was Revenge of the Frankenstein. Or sorry, Reve- the Revenge of Frankenstein, the Evil of Frankenstein, Frankenstein Created Woman, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, and then lastly in 1974. Frankenstein and the monster from hell. Wow. Wow. So see, knowing they're all those, it just makes me want to watch them all just because like how I've just, I don't know. I'd love to see how they evolve for sure. Exactly. What a wild (laughs) thing too, to think that this one was made in uh, 57 and the last one was made in 74. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Damn. Yeah. It was a, um, so Revenge of Frankenstein was the next year, but then that was a pretty big gap, 58 to 64 between Revenge and Evil. Mm-hmm. That's fun. thought it was interesting. What... The sc- Huh? Go ahead. The screenwriter said that he hadn't seen any of the Universal Frankenstein films. Oh, so nice. he just adapted the book the way he saw it. But I just thought that was so interesting because i'm trying to see like because it feels like there is just such a direct continuation from those universal frankenstein films just in the classical style the gothic setting but i guess those are just all in the novel so that would just happen anyway but i just thought cinematically how you see it as a then modern update of those 30s movies Mm -hmm. like you are only thinking those cinematic terms of okay yeah i can see now, this is an evolution of that. But to know that the person who wrote it wasn't at all thinking of those terms is interesting. But probably made up for, you know, by the fact I'm sure the filmmaker or the director saw it. So that does some lifting. Anyway, that was interesting. Yeah. You know what else? I, I, I don't know much about the how you like the legal property aspect of all of this. But like they obviously were able to to do all of the the universal monsters properties without any seemingly without any issue which i think is kind of fascinating cuz i know in other realms like marvel uh comic books for example could not use the term vampire i think and like there were certain restrictions on the rights to certain terminology maybe that's because they're a us company and maybe British companies didn't have to abide by the same things. I don't know, but I find that kind of fascinating that like, I mean, I think it's crazy that one entity can own a bunch of stuff, but that's the world we live in. Um, but it's cool to me that they were able to do their thing with it and not 
necessarily uh, suffer any real backlash. Yeah, I, I guess cool. for the case of this, the the story, the name Frankenstein is under fair use or whatever, or purchasable or whatever, or can't be owned. So it is just the particular designs within the right. iterations that then become po- copyrighted. Yeah, but man, like, how do you get away with that with Dracula and the mummy? Like, <laughs> like the, yeah, you, that's tough. Anyway, right. It's kind of Christopher Lee kind of does not look me. like Boris Karloff, so it's okay. I guess. Like, he's not <laughs> wearing the same, like, necklace. I don't know. Anyway, I don't have anything else, really. Cool. Great. Well, with that, we can put on a bow to to the Curse of Frankenstein from 1957 and wind down here with some recommendations. Tim, I got a pretty apropos one. Do you mind if I go? Go for it. All right. Well, not long ago, I had to see the last of the bigger Frank Henenlotter films I hadn't seen. So I was very excited to view. It was plenty before I knew we were going to be watching this. So it was a nice connection. Finally saw Frankenhooker. Oh, okay. Yeah. Film. Have you seen that? No, I have not. Well, I know of like it. the rest of his films, I highly, highly recommend it. So that's why I'm here recommending it. And there, if you like the whole aspect of like, particularly, uh, you know, seeking the particular parts to form the perfect human or whatever. He's doing that in this movie, but of course with like, who who does he think has the prettiest like hands and feet and face oh and breasts yeah. and all that. So he's making his own Frankenhooker. You can can guess. Uh, yeah. It's pretty pretty standout scene in the middle. Uh yeah, I just want everyone to see it. It's funny. I love his right. movies. But I've recommended other ones. So here we are. Check it out. Frank Henlotter's Frankenhooker. One word. Cool. Um, I as as I am wont to do whenever a new Marvel property comes out, I basically always recommend it. Unless it's bad, but um so far so far so good so there's a new series on disney plus that is a marvel series but this one's animated um which is interesting it's called what if based on a comic called what if so same same exact premise and all that which is essentially a uh a, a cosmic entity called the watcher is the narrator of this you know postulation of what if certain things that we know in the universe of Marvel had been different and that's opening up this idea of the multiverse and such but so for example in the first episode they say you know what if Steve Rogers who becomes Captain America hadn't become Captain America because things went differently and somebody else became or took the super soldier serum um, in this case, they they do it with uh, Peggy Carter be, being the recipient of the of the serum and becoming her own version of of a super soldier. Um, and so doing it animated obviously gives you quite a lot of leeway, uh, and the animation is pr- pretty cool. And the whole series it's episodic, so every episode is a different what if question and. You know, some interesting. There's been two episodes so far, and they've both been fun and interesting. And 
you know, keeps you kind of, you know, in touch with the Marvel Cinematic Universe without it really having any broader implication to any of that. You can kind of just one-off watch them if you've seen the uh, the source stuff and know where they're what they're referencing. It's it's fun. So check it out if you like that stuff at all. If you like what ifs, which is That's all right. we're ever doing here. <laughs> exactly. All right, man. It's my turn. For the hat poll, what are we watching next week, Tim? Oh, we're going to watch this one right here. I'm just doing a quick poll. No, I'm not even dancing around it. Uh Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Uh, How do I say this? Let me get it right. Kuroneko. It's 1968, directed by the same director of Onibaba. Yeah, this is what I've been wanting to see for a long time, you can imagine. Great. So there you Thanks go. Thanks for pulling it. Another, what was that director's name? I forget now. Oh, who directed Onibaba? Yeah. Kanito, Kanito Shindo. Nice. Yeah, cool. All great, right. great. I've been excited to see this. Cool. All right. Well, with that, our closing words. You can find us wherever you found us. Our big ask. You, uh, well, what do we want to say? What do we say? We want to say if you made it this far, you enjoyed being here with us. Maybe you tell a like-minded friend about our show. We got quite the repertoire now of episodes. So I'm sure they could find something that'd be a fun in for uh, yeah. joining us here in our dismembering horror abode and world. Yeah, and if if you if there's a movie that you're like, how have you guys not done this movie yet? Uh, please just send me a DM on, or probably Instagram is the place I'll I'll see most likely. Um, we have a Gmail and all that, but just DM me on Instagram and I'll and I'll put it in the hat. And leave your name and whatever. We'll say it was. This is a recommend Detchen hat drop by you know at uh, Jason Voorhees seventy eight Q. What's the Q? I don't know. Because <laughs> because seventy eight A through P were taken. I don't know. All the Jason Voorhees fans boarded seventy eight. Right. <laughs> Right. But do it. Well, <laughs> great. Awesome. With that, in closing, whether you're a cremp or a crempa, thanks for listening. And we will see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>